Uh, today we're going to talk about uh, what I think is the fastest growing religion in human history. Uh, it is the religion that actually it promises uh, so much. Uh, there's the religion that if you want to live a great life, uh, this is the religion that is beckoning you. Uh, today we're going to talk about a religion that if you want to live your best self, uh, this is the one. If you want to have wealth, if you want to have prosperity, if you want to have success, I'm telling you this is the fastest growing religion on the face of the planet. Now that religion is uh, self-confidence, self-assurance, and self-esteem. Uh, as a culture, we've actually uh, grown accustomed to worshiping individualism. Uh, better than anything else that we worship, uh, we worship the individual uh, like nothing else. What I deem moral, what I deem fair, what I deem good is how I'm going to live my life. It's like the whole post-modernity thing. You do what you want to do, I'm going to do what I want to do, and we'll live happily ever after. We worship the individual. The issue is that our self-assurance and our self-confidence will always be at the mercy of the weight of our weakness. So the things that you feel like are inadequate about you, the things that you feel like are weak about you, the things that you try not to tell anybody else, that will always be the thing that crushes your self-esteem, your self-assurance, and your self-confidence. It'll always be the thing that you want to tell anybody, you want to keep hidden, yet for some reason, we find ourselves worshiping individualism. Part of me wonders if it's why we find ourselves in a society that's so polarized today. Because we found our groups where we're going to be living with the other people who think the way we think, talk the way we talk, live the way we talk, uh, live the way we live. Uh, we've created worlds where my moral compass is completely predicated on how I feel as an individual. Winning becomes everything. It actually becomes our primary collective focus. It's almost winning at all costs. Now, I'm not sure that any of that you will find in Scripture. I'm actually not convinced that uh, this was the life that Jesus taught. So as we got to, the, to this series, I started to think, like, if Jesus were to show up today, like this morning he walks in, parks his car, uh, walks in, like, what would, what would Jesus say today? Like, if he, if he rocked up to the Father's house this morning, I might let him preach, I don't know, and he wanted to talk. Like, what would his message be? Uh, and when you read about the thing that's so amazing about the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, the thing that makes them so miraculous is that I actually think that Jesus would repeat these words verbatim this morning. I actually think if Jesus were to be here today, he would say the exact same thing in basically the exact same way. And those very words would still turn a society upside down. It would cause so much issue with the prevailing thoughts of today's culture that I promise you it would turn society upside down. So let's just read it together quick. This is Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12. It says, Jesus, he saw the crowds that were gathering, so he went up on a mountainside and he sat down. His disciples came to him. He began to teach them. And this is what he said. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, 
for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who you who were before you. This is quite a thing, because like, I don't know about you, but if you've ever like had a moment where this is your first, your first big moment in front of a group of people, and what you say now will dictate everything they think about you from here on out. I'm not sure any of us would start with blessed are the poor in spirit. Like it's like there's crowds of people, okay? This is his big moment, his stump speech. Jesus stands up. It's like blessed are the poor in spirit. And he ends with blessed are you when they persecute you and say all kinds of bad things about you on account of me. You're like the ones that came before you. And he like drops the mic and walks away. This is a very bizarre way to start your public ministry. It's not a good way to uh, gain a, a crowd. But this is what Jesus did. Now, there's a reason why he did this, and I want to explain it, because the, 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 the life that was happening when Jesus, when Jesus first started this, it was, it was strenuous, to say the least. Okay? Now, Jesus was a Palestinian Jew, and so he would have grown up with all the stories of the Jewish oppression uh, for, for centuries. It would have started with probably 539 B.C. is where his parents would have started, and they would have talked about the Babylonian captivity. Like, the, the Israelites were constantly in a state of oppression. And these are the stories that Jesus would have heard. Up until now, he's living his life, and there are, they are under the impression of the Roman Empire, which is at basically its peak at this time. Okay, and inside the Romans, the, the way the Romans led the people of Israel, they had a two-tiered system. They'd have the Roman oppressors, and then they would uh, appoint Jewish leaders over the areas to basically enforce the Roman law. This is where you get uh, Herod the Great. Herod the Great, he was half Jewish. He was a crazy individual, okay? Like his sons were even crazier than he was. It started to get a little bit too crazy. And so they ended up putting Pontius Pilate in charge. This is where the guy who was in charge when Jesus got executed, okay? So it is an outrageously oppressive environment for the people of Israel. So what the Israelites did was they've created all these different factions and ideologies of political and religious thought to kind of get them through, okay? There was four primary groups. When Jesus is talking, these are the four groups of people that are breathing down his neck, waiting to hear what this guy is going to say, okay? And these are the four groups. You have the zealots. Now, the zealots, this group, uh, they were like the revolutionaries, and they weren't like the gung-ho, let's go revolutionaries, they would kill you. They were that type of revolutionary, okay? Violence was like their MO. They loved to be violent, okay? It was an odd thing. Jesus was actually uh, ultimately executed as a zealot revolutionary, but if you read the words of Jesus, he was almost always on the side of nonviolence, which was actually more, uh, more terrifying for the people who were trying to keep power because he was gaining such a following. Anyway, zealots were nuts, okay? They wanted to kill all the Romans. Then you have the Sadducees. Okay, I have a Bible teacher. Uh, this is going to ruin this word for you, but he would say uh, it, they were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in the resurrection. So now every time you hear Sadducee, you're going to think that. You'll be very upset, but you'll remember 
they were marked by not believing in the resurrection. So they actually conserved, what they did was they conserved their wealth and their power through a political compromise with Rome, okay? Really interesting group of people. And they were some of the main prosecutors of Jesus because they started to realize the longer Jesus stays alive and keeps talking, the more our power is going to diminish. We got to get rid of this guy. They're there on the hillside listening to Jesus talk. Then you've got the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees, they were like the idealists of Jewish society. They get a lot of bad press in the Gospels for a variety of reasons, but really their, their main desire was to live a life of spiritual purity uh, by meticulously following the Jewish law. The reason they hated Jesus is because Jesus seemed to take a very relative view of the Jewish law. So the Pharisees are there. Pharisees are another group. And then you've got the, uh, the Essenes. Now, the Essenes, they basically lived a monastic lifestyle. These are the hippies of the culture, okay? They just loved it. They would have been at all the hippie festivals in the 60s. They would have been there with, with some of you, and it would have been great. Uh, but they uh, basically, uh, they kind of lived out on their own. They wanted nothing to do with society. Uh, it's hard to actually find interactions Jesus had with the Essenes other than uh, they considered John the Baptist like a quasi-Essene because he was crazy. So he would like dress in animal skins, he ate bugs, would go out to wilderness for periods of time. Anyway, so you got the Essenes, you got the Pharisees, you got the Sadducees, and the Zealots. All of these groups, they used political and theological ideology to try to manage life, to keep power, keep control, don't ruffle any feathers, and this is the setting that Jesus launches his public ministry. And the first thing Jesus says is, blessed are the poor in spirit. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, when Luke writes it, he actually leaves spirit out. He says, blessed are the poor. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. So if you do any Bible teaching, uh, there's a lot of debate. And is it poor? Is it poverty or is it poor in spirit? Well, if you follow the theme throughout Scripture, which we're going to do a little bit today, I think there's something to be said for a broken spirit, for understanding the brokenness of our humanity. Now, if you read Jesus, Jesus will always have his hand out to the disenfranchised. He will always have his hand out to the oppressed, always have his hand out to the people who are seen as outcasts in society. But this particular statement, blessed are the poor in spirit, this is what D.A. Carson says. He says, to be poor in spirit, it's not a lack of courage, but to acknowledge spiritual bankruptcy. It confesses one's unworthiness before God and utter dependence on him. In easier terms, maybe to understand, Jesus actually taught death to self constantly. He would say things unless you hate your father and mother. Like, Jesus taught death to self in order that we can understand grace. In order that the grace of God would be glorified. Let me decrease and the grace of God increase. All right, now to unpack this a little more, I want to talk about a guy named Moses. Now, we've been talking about him for about a month here because there were things that happened with Moses that are undeniably uh, just incredible. It like, fully portrays who God is, what grace is, and really what Jesus does for us. And so there's a story of Moses right in the beginning where uh, Moses, his, the, again, the Israelites were getting oppressed by the Egyptians. So his mom basically gives Moses away. He ends up growing up in Pharaoh's house. Now Moses has a stuttering problem. He like, legitimately cannot talk uh, so he's got a lot of issues. He's tried to navigate conflicts between the Israelites and the Egyptians with words. It never works. Finally, one day, one of the Egyptians is beating up one of his friends, and Moses jumps in and kills the Egyptian. 
okay, this is not a good idea. Uh, and so Moses is on the run now. And for decades, Moses is alone in the wilderness by himself. It says for so long that everybody who he knew is basically gone now. And there's a whole new government in town. And Egypt and Israel is going crazy. And Moses has found himself in the wilderness. Now, while Moses is being a shepherd, he goes out and he sees the burning bush. If you've been in church for a while, you know the burning bush. Now, Moses was not on any psychedelic drugs, as far as we know, um, but he saw the burning bush, and the burning bush starts talking to him. And if someone came to you today and said, I was talking to this burning bush, you'd probably have a few follow-up questions. But it happened, and it's an incredible story, because uh, God starts telling Moses, you are going to go and lead the Israel, Israelites out of Egypt. And four, five different times, Moses has excuses. He's like, I can't talk. They're not going to listen to me. They don't like me. And I, I think he says a couple times, like, I literally cannot talk. Like, I have a stuttering problem. Please don't put me in this weird position where I have to lead all these people. And then finally, in Exodus 14, or 13 and 14, Moses has had enough. And it's like humans do. We'll give excuse after excuse after excuse until finally we get to the end of ourselves and we actually just tell the truth. And so Moses says this. To, um, to God. He says, uh, Moses says, pardon me, uh, Lord, but please send someone else. Just send someone else. I don't want to do it. I don't want to be a part of it. I, I, I actually, I can think of like many other people who would probably be way better at this job than me. Please send someone else. I'm a nobody. The Egyptians don't like me. The Israelites don't like me. I can't talk my way out of anything. Please send someone else. What's so interesting is that Moses was broken, but God actually gives himself to broken spirits. God gives himself to broken spirits. It says this right after that. It says that the Lord's anger burned against Moses. Isn't it amazing what doesn't come next? God didn't look at Moses and like sit him down, you know, let's have an eye to eye. You've got this. You're a champion. I've made you. Like you're actually beautiful. I'm not going to worry about your voice. Look how good you look. You've got all these qualities about you that are amazing. You're strong. Like you do things effortlessly. Don't get caught up in the fact that you're weak in this one area. Like come on, you're anointed. I've called you. Like this is going to be so great. Like, man, if anybody could have healed Moses, it was God. But they could have followed that up with, with Moses being like, just send someone else. And God could have been like, forget it, and just touched his vocal cords, and Moses would have stopped stuttering. That's how we probably would have wrote it. It would have been a much better story. Like, this one guy, he couldn't talk, and then God healed him. And then he went and gave the most elegant speeches in front of Pharaoh and led the people out of Israel. None of that happened. It literally says, the Lord's anger burned against Moses. What Moses didn't seem to understand is that God specializes in damaged goods. What Moses didn't seem to understand is that God actually thrives with our inadequacies. It's like, and in fact, God wasn't even angry at Moses' low assessment of himself. That didn't shock God. God knew he had self-esteem issues. God knew that he had all the stuff he had to work through. What angered God so much is that God, uh, Moses actually had a low assessment of God's abilities. It wasn't Moses' low assessment of himself. It was his low assessment of what God actually wanted to do with someone with a broken spirit. Because when we finally admit that we are a broken person, that is when God 
gives himself to us. He will only give himself to a broken spirit. This is why God said over and over again, I will be with you. Every excuse that Moses gave, God kept reiterating, I will be with you. I will be with you. The biblical solution, you know what the biblical solution isn't to people who are paralyzed by guilt and inadequacy? It is not self-esteem work. The biblical solution to our inadequacy isn't self-talk. It's not sitting in front of a mirror in the morning and like writing notes on there for yourself so you just remember that you are strong, you are confident, you can build great things, like you can do, you do look good. They might say you're ugly, but you aren't ugly. Like that is not, that is not the biblical solution to our inadequacy because remember, your, your, uh, your self-esteem, your self-help work will always fall victim to your inadequacy. It just always will. At the end of the day, the inadequacy that you are feeling is always going to be stronger than your self-esteem work. It just is. The biblical solution to our brokenness is the fact that God gives us sovereign grace. God is actually so aware of your brokenness, and his answer is the beauty of grace. It is grace that God went to Moses and said, I actually want to use you in the midst of your inadequacy. What kind of story is it that God picks a guy who stutters to go have the most important conversation in Israel's history? It is an unbelievable story of the sovereign grace of God. God gives himself to broken people. That is what he does. His biggest concern is our dependency on his grace. It is nothing more, nothing less, full dependency on grace. So maybe you find yourself here today, paralyzed by your own inadequacy. The Tony Robbins books are good, but they haven't helped. You've self-talked yourself into like basically passing out. You've surrounded yourself with friends who just affirm you, they love you, they cherish you. You've done anything you can do to get some semblance of power and control back into your life, only to realize that the more control you try to take, the worse it just gets. You can follow this theme all through Scripture. Every single individual who tries to take control of their own narrative goes down the path of destruction. Moses did it with the Egyptian. David did it after he messed up with Bathsheba. Judas did it. Peter did it. Uh, who else did I write? Cain did it with Abel. Adam and Eve started the whole thing by trying to take power into their own hands. God cannot work with prideful people who just want power. He works his best with brokenness. It's just how he works. And he is well aware this morning of your brokenness. Like my brokenness doesn't make God nervous. Your brokenness, your story doesn't make God nervous. I actually think your story of brokenness kind of puts a smile on his face in a weird way. I think he's like, I can work with someone who is so aware of their brokenness that they're at the end of themselves. I think that's where God does his best work. He gives himself to those people, people who are poor in spirit. And then what would happen if you allowed your brokenness to bring you to a place of worship? I like what happens with Moses. Right at the end of his uh, very frustrating talk with God, God says, hey, don't forget to bring the rod with you that you've been using for decades. You're going to need that, is basically what he says. I think there's something significant about the rod that Moses used. 
Because that rod and that culture, like being a shepherd was a, a very bad job. Like that is like bottom of the barrel. When you have nothing left to do, you go and you be a shepherd. There's not a lot of money in it. It's very lonely. You don't make friends. You're dirty. You talk to animals all day. And God says, why don't you take the rod with you? Again, there could have been a million different ways that this went down. God could have gone to a different person. He could have said, I'm going to fabricate. He made a, he made a, a, a brush. He made a, a shrub burn, and he talked through it. Like, he could have done a lot of things. But he says, hey, I want you to take that instrument of a shepherd. I want you to bring it with you. Maybe God had Moses keep his staff for the, basically the remainder of his life while leading a couple million people, mind you, so that Moses never forgot his dependency on the one who called him. Maybe he never wanted Moses to forget that conversation at the burning bush. Maybe he never wanted to forget the, God, the time he made God so angry by trying to use his weakness as an excuse on why God can't use him. Maybe God got, never wanted him to forget what it meant to be poor in spirit. In a culture that wants you to conquer your weaknesses, to pretend at all costs, like you and your family have it all together, maybe God is saying, why don't you take your weaknesses with you? Why don't you just be honest about the fact that it's, you're not okay? Like, it's okay to not be okay. Like, what if you just took your staff with you? You said, this is just who I am. I'm going to lay it out for you. I don't have it all together. I'm at the end of myself. I'm broken. I don't have all the answers. I feel extremely inadequate. That is the spot where I think God consistently wants us to bring before him so that he can do great things with us. And it goes even further because this is what Paul says. Now, Paul, Paul was like, he was the Pharisee of Pharisees. He was it. He had everything he could ever want. He was cool. He was popular. He gave it all away to follow Jesus. And this is what he said. Because he talks about, this was one passage of scripture where he talks about the thorn in his side. And it gets crazy because he says, this is literally like a messenger of Satan to torment me. Have you ever thought about your issues that way? This is clearly a messenger of Satan to torment me. God, take it away. He says, I play, he prayed many times for God to take it away. And then he writes this, and he says, but he said to me, he says, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away. Just three times, which I also think is interesting. I mean, how often do we pray over and over and over again for God to take away the thing that ails us, to take away our weakness? Paul says, I gave it three shots. Three shots, that's it, we're moving on. This is what God said to uh, Paul after he prayed that prayer. He says, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Then Paul goes on and he says, Therefore, I will boast more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in my weaknesses, in my insults, in my hardships in my persecutions, in my difficulties. For when I am weak, then, and only then, am I strong. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Where have you allowed your weaknesses to take you? Maybe you're here today, you've actually allowed your weaknesses to take you down roads where the answer is only going to lead to destruction. Maybe your weaknesses have actually been eating at your mental capacity so much that you're almost ready to give up everything. Like, 
you think to yourself, this can't be fair. I must be the only one. There's no way that my life was supposed to turn out this bad. Where do you take your weaknesses? Because one of the other things that Jesus said, he said, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This theme has not been a secret, but for some reason we've allowed our culture to make us think that God is the God of the strong. He's the God of the wealthy. He's the God of the people who have it all together. He doesn't want a poor spirit. He wants a carefully pieced together spirit. That's who he wants to work with. But the theme all throughout scripture is that your self-confidence, your self-assurance will always be broken. It will always be at the mercy of your weakness. And it's in that place where you need a savior. And it's in that place where Jesus says, I'm Emmanuel, God with you. So maybe God wants to bring your weakness today into a place of worship. Allow your weakness to bring you to a place of full and utter dependence on the only one who can give you life and life to the fullest. This is why I said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs are the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is a place where it's, it's full of satisfaction. It's full of joy. It's peace in the, midst of the, in the midst of uncertainty. It's joy in the midst of sadness. It is, it is the abundant life that Jesus talks about. The foundation of all the Beatitudes has to start with blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs are the kingdom of heaven. This isn't an outline for elite Christianity. This is an outline for the pastoral work of the kingdom. The Beatitudes are the character of a follower of Jesus. Someone who is poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I actually think that's why you receive this communion cup. I think it's part of the reason why Jesus ended his time with his disciples with communion, the Last Supper. I think what Jesus knew is as they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest, as they're trying to figure out who's going to betray God, I think what he realized is that none of them understand this yet, but every single person around this table is going to die a pretty horrific death. And at the end of it all, they need to be very certain that I am who I say I am. That in the midst of their brokenness, they can lean on still, even though I'm not here in person, on the one who brings them wholeness. So as you take your communion cup, you can just peel off the top layer. You know, maybe if, if Jesus was here today, maybe he would want us to take communion together. Maybe he'd want to remind us that his body was broken. Like he was broken so that you no longer have to be. He was broken so that in your weakness you can find wholeness. So as we take this, this wafer together, I want us to think about our own brokenness and the fact that there was a savior of the world who was broken for all of us. As you get ready to drink the cup, I just want to pray. I want to pray that God would forgive us for our self-dependence, for striving under our own power, and that we would be reminded again that, that just as David prayed, that God would restore the joy of our salvation. Jesus, we thank you 
that you are a God who specializes in damaged goods. God, the thing that makes following you so incredible is that we can come to you in our brokenness. And you are there waiting for us. So God, forgive us for leaning on our self-assurance. Forgive us for leaning on our self-reliance. God, forgive us for trying to take power and be dependent on our own strength. But God, remind us today of what it means to come to you with a broken spirit, with full dependence on you. In Jesus' name, let's take this together. Father God, it's so hard in a world that constantly reminds us that there are winners and there are losers. There are those at the top and those at the bottom. Rid our hearts and minds from a race that we were never called to run. You invited us to be a people that trust your sovereignty, you going before us, and the God that is ever more than enough. And Jesus, you said if the Father can take care of the sparrows, aren't you worth more than these? So I pray for a peace over every heart. A sense that in your eyes we are more than enough for what you have called us to do every day. May we open our arms and receive richly from your grace that enables us each and every day. Pray that this word will rest so deeply on our hearts. And change the inner conversation, God, so that we may be fully alive and live freely in you. We love you, Father. 